Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, in 2003, uh, I went to Burning Man, and it was kind of a significant year for me. Um, I had been going to the festival almost every year since 1994, uh, back in the uh, the old school days. There was about 2,000 people when I first went there. And uh, I wrote about the event the, the following year for uh, for the Village Voice. And then after that, I decided I didn't want to be in a, 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 my usual participant, observer, writer guy when I went out to the playa. So the next times uh, I went out, I just dove in. I didn't take any notes. I barely remember what I did. It was a tremendous amount of fun. Um, and then, you know, I was starting to get a little bit, I don't know, jaded isn't quite the right word, but, uh, you know, I was sort of seeing the event. It was still really wonderful years, but I, I felt like I needed to kind of take a little distance from it. When somebody invited me to give a talk uh, on, uh, uh, on Burning Man, at Burning Man, and it was the first year that sort of speaker spaces developed on the playa. You know, people go to festivals these days, at least in, in the United States. And there's, you know, generally now a kind of area where there are speakers, talks, workshops. That was not always the case uh, at festivals. And indeed, at Burning Man, organized uh, speaker series didn't start until that year, until 2003. Uh, with Palenque Norte, a group that was focused on psychedelics but had a lot of other irons in the fire. Uh, and so I gave uh, this talk about Burning Man that went on to, to be a, a, an essay that I, uh, that I wrote that was a lot of fun. Um, but the, th the reason I'm telling this whole story is that the, the place where the, uh, the talk took place was this bizarre, wonderful, weird kind of Buckminster Fuller igloo uh, known as a hexayurt. Uh, and these appeared, started appearing on the playa in 2003, a year after they were invented by our guest today, Vinay Gupta. And so it's a nice uh, little roundabout uh, resonance because I remember that space quite well, particularly because it was a storm towards the end of my talk. So I had to kind of scream into this sort of blowing dust uh, storm uh, you know, to all of these characters, a number of whom told me uh, much later that it was a real transformative talk for them. So it was a transformative moment for me, and uh, I have to thank, uh, thank Vinay for that. And uh, Vinay is a very interesting character because uh, he's known sort of visibly as a uh, sort of visionary, particular on issues of, about resilience, about poverty in the future. Uh, he's a disaster consultant, software engineer who's worked on uh, the Ethereum, which is a, you know, potentially quite revolutionary uh, platform that uses blockchain uh, technology and is associated with a uh, cryptocurrency called Ether, or some people call it Ethereum as well, that has uh, been blowing through the roof of late. And if that all sounds like gobbledygook to you, then maybe we'll maybe, hopefully we might clarify this a little bit later in the talk. Um, in any case, uh, Vinay is kind of like a roving one man band of futurology in a very realistic, very down to earth and, and profoundly ethical way that is quite inspiring. Um, but what's also inspiring to me is that he is a he's a very deep guy and he uh, has quite a fascinating spiritual story to tell as well. And he. He kind of, to my mind, almost epitomizes 
the, uh, the, the sort of other possibility of contemporary spirituality, which is not to dive into your narcissistic navel of uh, glossy, good-looking, you know, West Coast hedonism, uh, but instead to turn around from these experiences of, uh, of, 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 an, of enlightenment states or profound uh, visionary experiences or indeed tons of high weirdness and return to the world with, uh, you know, all, all focus upon uh, the pragmatic reality of our condition here uh, in the century of changes, of mighty, mighty changes. And so it's that connection that particularly interests me, at least for this conversation. So I just want to say thanks to Vinay for joining us on Expanding Mind, sir. And uh, so uh, how, you're, you're in London, right? Uh, yes. Uh, I've been here almost 10 years. That's wonderful. I'll be coming to London soon for uh, for breaking convention. At the, ah. So hopefully, hopefully you'll be around. Um, yeah, I want to just talk a little bit about, about the Hexa year before we get to the sort of personal story we, we talked about uh, before. Um, and just in terms of uh, what kind of, you know, you, you created these these designs you uh, made them open source. You sort of just d said, come on, world, you know, take this marvelous design and run with it. And uh, what was the sort of motivation behind that, uh, that project and, and how is it doing now? So the Hexart was explicitly designed for refugees. Um, I was at a think tank called Rocky Mountain Institute in those days uh, in Colorado. And uh, somebody said, hey, Vinay, you know, could you figure out, you're an engineer, could you figure out how to make a refugee shelter that could be flat packed on a truck and then relocated with refugees and then put back up again so they'd have some place to live when you repatriated them? And I was like, yeah, sure. And, you know, I went home and 15 minutes later, I had the hex here. Um, and this was built on top of a kind of six month design process that I'd gone through unsuccessfully in 1995. Uh, when the folks on the farm in Tennessee asked me a very similar question, uh, the farm is Gaskin's farm. Right? It was one of the big, famous kind of hippie communes of the 60s, 70s. Um, so once it was done, the Hexer was kind of born into this context of it was about refugees. And then once I'd identified it was about refugees, it was kind of this question of scaling, like, well, how many refugees are there? OK, there's about 60 million now, but the climate crisis expectation is we might have 150 million or more displaced. Um, and that was the point where it became real, like, OK, so I'm trying to design a living system for 150 million people on the absolute minimum amount of money that could be spent. And that pretty much set the direction for the next chunk of my life. But it was it was that framing of the question that did it. Yeah, and it seems like that's been one of your 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 kind of key focuses is just being very realistic about the fact that even in the best case scenarios, we're, we're going to be looking at you know, incredibly num incredibly high numbers of displaced people, of refugees, of people continuing to live within grinding poverty. And, and it seems like one of your main design motivations, which is both technical and ethical, uh, uh, is to figure out the cheapest, most efficient way to create the bare minimum of, of items and processes and uh, technologies that can enable people to have a decent life within these extreme circumstances that, that uh, people are facing in the future. Well, I mean, the extreme circumstances thing is, is real for all of us already anyway, you know? 
I mean, you know, we we know that the situation that we're in is that we're consuming four or five planets worth of resources on average. We know that we've got tons of homeless people even within very, very affluent societies like America or England or any other European country. Um, so, you know, the stuff is right in front of us is we've just got to figure out better ways of doing this so that everybody can have a house. Yeah, absolutely. It totally makes sense. It's funny. You know, I was just in, I was just in Israel for for the first time, and it was a kind of an uncanny feeling because I was I was hanging out with some really cool guys. I was invited to give a talk at a conference, and you know, uh, really excellent people, and and you know, fascinating place, and you know, uh, wonderful food, and et cetera, et cetera. But there's this very present ambient sense of the the situation the fact that the that the state is built on this you know tremendously complex and long standing mechanism of of displacement and dis, you know and and, and appro- uh, dispropriation and colonization and uh, police control over whole populations and uh, and it's it, it creates this really weird sense that's because you, you sort of feel like, you know, you're hanging out with these cool people, but the whole thing is structured on this this really um, violent system. Mm. Uh, and and then I kind of flash because I was like, I was like, man, that's what that's what it, <laughs> that's what we're all like. I mean, we're all we, we don't see it as much and it may not be as explicitly um you know heavy duty in terms of uh you know the controls of populations but just the way in which living in the west today if you're paying attention is like being aware that you're inside of this sort of relatively pleasant bubble when of course all the time you can see directly through the cracks of the bubble towards people as you say even in your own community but certainly on a on a world scale uh that are organized very differently in terms of access to resources, uh, you know, control through, uh, you know, police forms and other forms of control. Uh, and, and, and it just made me realize it's kind of a generalized condition now of, of anyone who's living in an affluent society uh, that the, that we, we you know, we, we, ha- we have to both kind of embrace the situation that we have, but recognize that if we don't turn outside and deal with uh, the people on the outside, that uh, things are going to get mighty, mighty grim. Um, and I mean, I guess one of the things that motivates me is throughout your work is that there's a particular, I would say, kind of ethical quality or sort of uh, there's a there's a, a feeling for your motivation in looking hard and realistically at these problems. But it seems to come from a deeper source than simply do goodism or a kind of sense of moral urgency there you're you almost are uh, uh, I don't know something in you has risen to the occasion and I, I I'm really interested in that part of your story of uh, what it was that was happening to you personally psychologically spiritually that lit this fire that has created so much uh, you know innovation and talks and you've talked to so many different groups and you're kind of like a one-man band you're not like a part of a T- typical NGO setting. You work with multiple institutions with these, with these uh, on on these and a lot of other issues. I mean, we could talk about Ethereum too. That's a whole other set of technical and uh, radical social, political possibility, economic possibilities uh, as well. And I, I kind of want to know, like, what makes that tick? There seems to be something alive and on fire in, in you that's uh, that's unusual. And and uh, I, I'd love to hear you uh, you tell that that part of your story. 
Mm, sure. So, I mean, I'm 45 now. Uh, I started meditating when I was about 14. And I had a really heavy meditation practice. You know, I was doing an hour a day, two hours a day. Uh, I had no spiritual beliefs. I had been raised as an agnostic. My father was a research scientist, you know, and I kept that up for a really long time. Uh, and then one day my internal dialogue stopped. Uh, I just had no chatter in my head. There was no narrator. It was just this absolute pin drop silence. And, you know, my first thought was like, oh, oh, I've broken myself. I'm in real trouble. Wow. Um, and it's, you know, I say my first thought and you kind of think, well, how do you think under those circumstances? And you just somehow cognition occurs. So over the next couple of weeks, I noticed that I could still function. I could still go to work. I'm still acting normal socially. Nobody's commenting that my behavior has become strange. So apparently everything still functions. Um, but I'm still in this kind of profound altered state. And, you know, fortunately enough, I'm in the middle of reading the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali when this happens, BKS Iyengar's translation. And then I realized, like, okay, this is a normal state of consciousness that the Hindus have really good maps for. So I decide, okay, I'm going to be a Hindu. And, and that kind of takes me back into my father's culture, my father's tradition. Um, so that was kind of the first really concrete step that brought me this on this track. Uh yeah. You know, I, I, I want to interrupt just because I, I mean, I've heard you, I, I've, I've listened to you describe that state before. And I've, of course, read about it in, in other accounts that, that meditators, contemporary meditators have, have given. And the one part of it that I that I'm curious about is, does that how, how do you deliberate? So I, I noticed that my like internal chatter often rises to a to a pitch, high pitch when I have some kind of decision, you know, and I'm like, I'm a little, I'm sort of an indecisive person. I can always, I'm a Gemini. I can always see multiple points of view. So even if I'm pretty calm and present through most of my day, let's say, then I'm there and I, I'm shopping for dinner and I have to decide between different items. I, I notice much more internal, like, well, what about that? What about that? What are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? Um, and I'm curious how deliberation occurs in this kind of condition where there's 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 this sort of damp you know tremendous dampening of, of the normal internal chatter so most of the time uh, i just kind of know the right thing to do right you know in in most situations you know there's a choice between doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing and you just consistently do the right thing and there aren't actually that many choices um sometimes i'll find myself sitting down and thinking well, what do i actually want and that's kind of a self-knowledge thing. And you basically just kind of sit there until you know what you want. Sometimes it's quicker. Sometimes it's, you know, it takes longer. But, you know, the majority of life's choices are about understanding your own desires, your needs, your aesthetics, or choosing between right and wrong. Um, the really hard stuff is choosing between wrong and wrong. You know, when you're in a position where there are two bad options and then you're trying to go backwards and forwards, that's really where the tough stuff happens. And for that, most of the time, it will pay out as patterns of muscular tension. Like I think about one course of action, my body feels a particular way. I think about another course of action, I feel a different way. And it's this process of kind of going backwards and forwards, kind of really feeling out almost into the physical structure, how the organism is responding to the prospect. Fascinating. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm curious how many of the, when, when you look, this is, I'm just going to jump for a moment back into the, the, the sort of uh, futuristic work that you do, uh, but I was just in, uh, inspired by this idea of how do we choose wrong from wrong. When you think about 
futures and uh, future disaster potentials, preparation, uh, resiliency, things that we can do to design a better future given the you know, probability space of a lot of bad things happening. Do you feel like we're choosing between different wrongs or that a lot of the time it's actually clear, at least for you, what the right thing to do is given these concrete circumstances and, and possibilities? Well, I mean, right now, doing kind of food and birth control and a couple other basic things for the entire human race would cost a really small percentage of our total spending on arms. So, you know, it's fairly clear that we ought to have kind of a global minimum standard of living, and that probably ought to be defined in terms of access to goods and services rather than by a quantity of money. Right? Everybody should accept the following things. These things are basically, uh, I'm not sure human rights is the right way to frame it, but they are, you know, universal needs, and we recognize that all cultures should cover these universal needs for their people. Um and that seems like kind of a no-brainer. Like, we ought to just get on with doing that. I don't know why people are so resistant to it as a concept. It's not that expensive. So there's your kind of first thing that we ought to get around to doing. After that, it's much, much more complicated because then you're making trade-offs where you've got to deal with real uncertainties. Like, we can all agree that people starving to death on a planet filled with food is stupid, and we should stop that. That's a choice we should right and wrong. The wrong and wrong choices are much, much harder. Like, you know... Do we plunge a whole bunch of people from comfort into poverty by abandoning the fossil fuel industry, fossil fuel industry now, or do we let the coal plants stay open and try to invest their profits in finding a better green economy? And that kind of stuff is really, really difficult. But in a sense, I don't care as long as we've covered the basic needs of the entire human race. Everything after that is kind of gravy, and I sort of feel like at that point I would be pretty happy to pass the torch. Like, okay, we got everybody fed and everybody's housed and nobody's dying of poverty. And what you guys do with it after that, it's up to you. I don't care. Yeah, that's interesting. It's almost like the clarity of that of that particular uh, visionary goal uh, allows you to suspend a lot of problems that a lot of people get. That's the main thing they get caught up with. Like you have a sort of very clear vision of of this basic you know, uh, decent life in the in yeah. difficult circumstances, and that helps you cut through some of the com some of the complexities that uh, that otherwise can get in the way. And I mean, this is not stuff that has no prototype, right? Kerala and India is a sixty million person political unit with a dollar a day income and life expectancy right in line with Europe. You know, they're doing that because they have a society which is well organized for dealing with people's basic life support needs. And it takes that stuff seriously as the real business of the state rather than viewing it as a kind of fourth or fifth or ninth priority. And they're, they're really good at that stuff. Do you, th do you think that there's challenges then because that obviously partly uh, relies on a political reality within that particular state, its own history, it's the history of, of you know, socialism in that state, its mm -hmm. own, you know, decisions that have been made for, for a long time to create a kind of culture with wherein everybody recognizes the value of, let's say, literacy or, you know, re fairly high degrees of power among yeah. women, et cetera, et cetera. But in obviously in all, most other places, we don't have that kind of cultural situation that's uh, incredibly complex. There are multiple value systems. There's, yeah. there's very little disagreement. And I know that in many, a lot of your work is, is about affordable technical solutions to problems and that, that there's a way in which 
new technologies or even just cheap technologies well designed uh, can be uh, uh, distributed, can sort of almost outrun the political quagmire we're facing in order to create, you know, the sort of basic conditions of, of sustainability or, or, you know, livability. Um, but what do, how do you feel about all of the political, ideological, cultural blockages? You know, let's say the blockage between even being able to conceive that a universal guaranteed income is a good idea. I mean, there's an enormous, like, especially in the United States, enormous resistance to that idea. I mean, you can't even, that's not even a conceivable thought for many uh, conservatives in our country. It's just absolutely anathema. Um, so I'm curious how you how you feel like is it is the goal to more kind of elude those problems is there a sort of vision to counter them how do you deal with that that political cultural morass that so much of us experience these days when we're trying to think about the future well so I, i've gone through phases on this um you know one of the great lessons i took from gandhi is that gandhi changes his mind you know, young Gandhi, middle-aged Gandhi, old Gandhi, and really old Gandhi believe fundamentally different things about the world. And he tries things, and when they don't work, he tries something else. He learns from his mistakes. So he doesn't have an ideological certainty about what will work. Rather, he goes forward and he does the experiments, right? This is why his book is called My Experiments with Truth. So, you know, when I first came up with the Hexiar and the critical infrastructure stuff, and really made the discovery, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a discovery like the first time in the world, it was just discovery for me, it was new to me. So I discovered that, you know, we could actually deal with all of the human race's basic needs in a really cheap and affordable way. And at that point, what I realized was that all the poverty that we see around us is optional. It's not that we don't have enough food, we're growing twice the number of calories it takes to feed the entire human race. It's not that we don't have enough shelter. Shelter is incredibly cheap. We, we have plenty of land. It's, all of these problems could be solved. But what's happening is that people are uh, prioritizing their own uh, desires over other people's fundamental needs. Right? People want a yacht, and they want that yacht enough that if it causes 20,000 people to stay homeless in some other part of the world, they're fine with that because at the end of the day, their morality is that this is theirs, and it, if they, you know, this thing belongs to them by right for the work that they've done, and other people's problems are other people's problems, not my problems. And that sort of morality, like, you know, that's a kind of stupid that I just don't know how to cure. You know, you look at somebody who looks at the world that way, and it's just like, okay, this is just stupid. Right? But it's not the kind of stupid that goes away with a little bit of education or you read a couple of books and you watch a movie and suddenly you have a moral awakening. It's the kind of stupid that takes these people like their entire lives to wise up out of. They get to be 40, 50, years, 60 years old. Suddenly they turn a corner, they have a midlife crisis, they turn into a different kind of person. Or they just keep on trucking on this kind of stupid path right up until they die. And I have no capability to go out there and change these people's minds. Now, in your case, I mean, I suspect you were always pretty much of a good guy. But was the clarity of that problem and of the proper ethical framework and relationship to it, was that, was that changed, intensified by your the insights you gained through meditation or some of the other, you know, more visionary experiences that, that you had? Was that a part of... Was that part of what the outcome was of the, this sort of internal work, or was it just always clear to you that these that that standard morality was was false? 
Well, it sort of divides into three phases, right? So in the first part of my life, until I'm 26 or 28, uh, I guess 26, all I'm really thinking about is how do I survive? And after a while, that becomes how do I get enlightened? It's pretty clear that it's enlightenment or bust for me because of the situation of my birth and the nature of my character. You know, these characteristics compel me. It's enlightenment or bust. So after I get enlightened, which is, I guess, 98, you know, I get a job in a web design firm programming their computers for good money in Chicago. And I settle down into a perfectly ordinary householder existence. I rent an apartment. I have a nice girlfriend. You know, I go to work in the mornings, I do the work, I come home at night, and that's life, and everything is fine. And it's like, okay, here we are. And I had no sense that that was an incomplete or a selfish existence. It was just me taking care of me in the way that people like me did. It was very average. And I was going through the world as this kind of mystical, you know, wonder wand because I was looking at the thing through an enlightened uh, perspective. But, you know, chopping wood and carrying water were what were happening, and that's what I was doing, and everything was fine. Um, spring of 2001, uh, I'm meditating in Chicago, trying to tune into a Hindu religious festival that's happening on the other side of the world called the Maha Kumbha Mela, Maha Maha Kumbha Mela, 140 year cycle. Um, and I have an enormously powerful visionary experience. And it's only after that experience that all of this, you know, kind of like I should go and take care of the entire planet stuff kicks in. So, you know, I, I sort of have some sense of like, you know, if somebody had come up to me before that experience and said it was my job to take care of other people, I think there would have been a certain amount of resistance to that. But after that experience, it was just weird that not everybody was doing the same thing because it was totally obvious. So there was a very, very dramatic shift in perspective that was nothing to do with enlightenment as a personal process of like a journey towards truth. And it was much more some kind of deus ex machina you know, like hit on the head with a magic cosmic hammer kind of a waking up experience. But it was kind of on a moral axis rather than an, uh, a realization of truth axis. And that was really dramatic. I mean, it was full on psychedelic weirdness. That is a, such a fascinating distinction because I think that, I mean, certainly, you know, coming from uh, uh, too too much familiarity with the, the uh, uh sort of new age ideas about enlightenment or, you know, contemporary Buddhist ideas or even just contemporary spiritual ideas, let's call it that, within mm. the West. Um, there's often the idea that that the sort of moral response is is absolutely bound up with, with you know, enlightenment, you know, that, that that's it, that's the moment. And it's also the case that very few people these days, you know, back in the 70s, everyone was willing to talk about it was enlightenment or bust or, or to say, oh, yeah, I've, I've been enlightened or I want to get enlightened or whatever. And mm -hmm. over the years, as it became <laughs> more <laughs> clear that a lot of people weren't having those experiences, um, that there's sort of much more caution around that and a caution that you that you ignore. You're like, no, no, I wanted enlightenment and I'm enlightened. And that's something uh, that you're willing to sort of say it in that simple way is somewhat non-ordinary, uh, even for people who are familiar with the issues and the background and the practices that you're talking about. Um, so I, it's, I'd like to then take that this moment to then say, what does that mean for you? And what is its sort of constraints? Because that's one of the things I think a lot of people 
they they talk about enlightenment experiences or actually being enlightened and it's everything it's the whole enchilada it's everything they want it's complete transformation of personality and all these other things that are added to it but you mean it in a more specific and to some extent constrained sense which really intrigues me um yeah i mean so a lot of this i think that people mistake developmental hype for the reality Right. So a really good example is the way that teenagers are around sex before they have sex. Right. You know, there's this whole kind of cultish wonderland of on the other side of the magic door is everything you want in life. This is the goal of all existence. You know, once you get there, you've arrived. Right. I think we all remember that phase of our lives. Then you have sex. And then there's a kind of thing of like, and the next morning life continues. Oh, and okay, you've got a whole new dimension to your life, but you're still the same person that you were. You're just in a slightly different context. You've added some new dimensions to your personality, but you're still the same person in the same world doing the same stuff. And so it is with enlightenment, right? I think that enlightenment correctly understood is simply the restoration of normal human function with a reasonably clear understanding of the, the nature of human experience. Right. I mean, it's like it's pretty obvious that we're all part of one enormous system. You can see that from the atoms in our bodies or the ideas in our heads. And the idea that you would be able to directly perceive yourself as part of that enormous system doesn't seem remarkable. It seems like common sense clearly stated. So I think a lot of the Enlightenment experience is simply just the restoration of the normal. Like, oh, yeah, right. OK, got it. I understand where I'm located in time and space. I've got a clear understanding of the nature of my being, and I understand that there is something wonderful and mystical about the entire process, but that doesn't change the fact that the process is the process. I was born, I will live, I will die, end of story. So, you know, that sort of notion, uh, I think, is largely lost in the West because we're very confused between the Enlightenment condition and the idea of some kind of spiritual salvation or a unity with... Uh, a very kind of uh, judging God, right? You know, I got, you know, into the good books with Jesus and the lads, and now I know that I'm not going to go to hell and God is going to come and, you know, I don't know, paint my crown with feathers, whatever it is they do up there in those heavens. So in that culture, when you confuse enlightenment with salvation, there's a really strong sense of like something wonderful has happened and you've been specially chosen and all the rest of that stuff. And that is not at all the way that it occurs to at least my branch of the Hindu tradition. My branch of the Hindu tradition is like, ah, you've finally understood that you are standing in water. Yes, if you would like to be on dry land, you should get out of the swimming pool. It is cold and dark. Uh, okay, I'll do that now. You know, it's kind of a removal of stupidity rather than some enormous wonder one that opens up to you. Well, that, that's part of what I like about your account of, of this stuff is just the, the, the kind of realism of it. Um, and I think it, that people are probably, I think, even afraid of it. I mean, there's so much fantasy mm. in how people approach spirituality, some of which is fine and some of which is maybe even necessary as a goad for, for some people part of the way. And, and that it, But at, at the same time, it seems like a lot of what's actually happening is something closer to a kind of disenchantment or a, mm. you know, de-idiotizing, you know, where you're, you're yeah. removing these conceptual concepts and you're getting towards a place of, of, of ability to be more in presence and to be less reactive and not be yeah. internal scripts all the time. Um, but I still think it's fascinating that it was not that experience or that process or that uh, uh, transformation 
that had as galvanizing a role for you and your work uh, uh, as a you know futurologist, global resiliency expert, as this yeah. later vision that was much wackier. Yes. Like. Yeah. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about the wacky vision and how that ended up having a, a moral rather than a kind of co a consciousness, psycho-spiritual, or even cosmological uh, outcome uh, as much. So that would, uh, yeah, what happened? <laughs> yeah, see, see now, right, this is where we kind of go off-roading, right? Up until now, everything's kind of cool and it's all kind of kosher and it all makes sense, right? After this point, we are in la-la land and there's no coming back. So, you know, I think of the kind of the enlightenment thing that happened, right? You know, as being very much, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, right? You know, I went from being a video game, you know, kind of computer graphics guy to being a web design guy. And that was the big, you know, the, you know, life discontinued. Uh, it wasn't a discontinuous change in the pattern of my everyday events. My interior consciousness was completely transformed. The exterior was basically pretty much the same right i got a better job that was really nice i went back to work um and it was pretty disruptive at the time i mean let's make no mistake it was an extreme spiritual practice that led me there but once it was done the idea was that i went back to the sort of natural flow of my individual life pretty much on the same track i'd been on then comes 2001 spring of 2001 sitting meditating in chicago stone cold sober and I have an honest to God, only one that I've had in my life in this kind of form, vision. And it is, you know, it's like this thing is being projected into my head with enormous clarity and force. And the emotional tone of the entire thing is 100% Douglas Adams or Monty Python. It is like the universe showing up with this incredibly important message wrapped up in total farce. And to this day, I cannot tell you why it landed in that form. It's absolutely bonkers. So I'm sitting in Chicago, and what opens up in my head is this infinite airport, right? It's it's 100,000 booths wide. The queues are 100,000 years long. The entire thing, it's like the entire human race is in this infinite airport. And they're trying to get all these people reincarnated onto a new planet because the Earth is dead. There are no more human births available. Everybody has snuffed it, and they're all in this enormous holding pen being reincarnated onto other planets in their extended family groups. And I'm just staring at this, and this is being presented as being kind of funny. Like, oh my god, the queues are so enormously long. Wow, this is a mess. This is going to take forever to sort out. Wow, it's all gone wrong. Ah, awful. But it's being told as a joke, right? Second phase opens... About two dozen of the staff of this facility pop up and they're like, swami, 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 it doesn't matter that all these people will die, that the earth will die, everything that will born will die. But if they all die right now, we have to do the paperwork and we can't stand listening to 100,000 years of people complaining. And and then there's, you know, there's a little more of this kind of stuff and then they vanish and that's it, there's the vision. And I'm just sitting there st staring at the room like, okay, what the hell was that, number one? And number two, uh, I've waited all this, you know, all my life to have some kind of contact with, you know, the, the great beyond, whatever it is. And it turns out to be Douglas Adams is God. What the hell is this? So I'm very confused, but, you know, 
there we are. And then a couple of days later, there's sort of an aftershock and there's this kind of seismic bomb that kind of goes off in my head. And, you know, I have this feeling of like just inhuman power and clarity and force and, you know, wisdom and, you know, just this boom goes off. Uh, and then I'm off to the races and I get it into my head that I'm going to move to Aspen, Colorado for some reason. And, you know, it's like this mashed potato tower kind of period where I'm just running on some kind of interior instinct. You know, it's like, you know, like the, remember the crazy scene in Close Encounters with the guys? Sure, sure. Show, right? So it's kind of like that. There's like a homing signal, which is Aspen, Colorado. And I just pick up my life in Chicago and I move to Aspen and I get a job. And and it's, you know, it's a lot more complicated than that. But I wind up working for a Tibetan Lama. And shortly after that, uh, I'm working at Rocky Mountain Institute. And now I'm disaster guy. And it was just this kind of like, well, I don't pretend to understand what that vision was or where it came from. But apparently it worked. Right. And, and here I am. I'm a new person doing a new thing. Oh, my God. It's so amazing. There's so many things to say about that. I mean, it's just... Uh... You know, one is just the the role of the of the humor and how the absurd uh, is part of least for I think modern, you know, contemporary people. Mm. It's part of the weave. I mean, maybe there was always that absurd element and that some, you know, mystics in in India or at the Amazon were getting hilarious visions. You know, two thousand years ago, but it's it's very much seems to be part of our spiritual zone that the sacred and the profane smash into each other and create absurdity mm-hmm. and uh that that sort of robert anton wilson uh douglas adams like side of things which is obviously also a part of psychedelia as well but it's not restricted to that there's some way in which even the mysteries take on a sort of cartoonish um uh, impish quality uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that seems very, um, you know, particularly pronounced in your form. But I do think there's something special about that whole airport thing. You're not alone on the Bardo airport. I've had Bardo airport dreams. I've known other people who've had Bardo airport dreams. Yeah. <laughs> I've even had that feeling just going through airports sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but Absolutely. the other thing, the other thing that that you uh, I heard you talk about in in another uh, discussion online that I thought was really key is the way in which you talk about how these you in the, in that talk you called them mythological experiences, which I think is a fair way of putting it. That these visionary mythological experiences are are singular; they're unique to people. It is not mm-hmm. that you saw or believe that you saw, which is probably even more the important point, some fundamental truth that is true for all about the nature of the future and the afterlife and the beings who are controlling or, or guiding our souls, et cetera, et cetera. You had this experience. You allowed it to obsess you or to or you, you had maybe had no choice. It moved into you. You went through the the crazy mashed potato period of like, I have to change my life. You, you were quote unquote, a little mad for a, for a spell. And yet at the far end, as you sort of found your way into another life, it wasn't like, and then I saw the truth. And then I've had the, the, the explicit download about the airport Bardo reality. You know, you, you were, you were able to both Take the vision seriously, at least as much as you could, given its absurd character, but take it as a real vision 
to even let it inspire you to make radical changes in your life and yet not hold on to it as a now more fully revealed truth or a truer truth. Mm-hmm. Why, why, how did that happen? How did you navigate that? Because that's where a lot of people get lost. They get caught up in being messiahs. They've had the vision. They're full of inflation. I mean, I've seen this over and over with people. Uh, that didn't, it's, you know, it didn't really happen with you or at least it, it not, not on the far end of it. So how did that, how did that negotiation happen? Well, so the, I think there's two parts to this, right? So in the vision, it was very clear that this was a broadcast message, right? It was kind of like, you know, I got the feeling that I was one of maybe 10 or 100,000 people that were getting poked to get up and go do something. You know, there was there was no element of like, you're the chosen one. It's more of like all points bulletin, general distress call. Could we please have some more cashiers on aisle 14, please? Um, so that was certainly part of it. The other part is that I had excellent training from my guru. You know, my guru was a, you know, crazy little Jewish lady from New York who'd gone off to India in the 60s and 70s and came back enlightened. And she was hilarious. I mean, just one of the funniest, weirdest people that history has ever known. And she's left almost no footprints. You know, there's no book. There's no organization left behind. There are barely any pictures. She's just something that happened and then just washed out reality, which is how she wanted it. Uh, she was very much about not leaving footprints. Um but her her approach to me was always basically hilarious. You know, there was this kind of thing of like, you know, I think the first time she saw me, she turned around and looked at me. It's like, oh, it's you again. It's like, what? Uh, and it kind of went on like that. She, she used to say, Fidei, you have the body of a god. Unfortunately, it is Lord Ganesha. And this is quite funny because I've always been kind of a <laughs> fat guy. And it was kind of like, eh, <laughs> yeah, okay. And then one day she kind of blindsides me. Fidei, I think you might be a, a fourth grade avatar of Lord Ganesha. And I'm like, I can see the wind up, like, you know, like, okay, I, there's there's a punchline here. How do I avoid it? So I say, so what is a fifth rate avatar like Oguru? And she says, ah, usually made of plastic and hangs from rear view mirrors. <laughs> and, you know, it's quite hard to get to inflation from that kind of situation, you know? Um, like, I've certainly done things where I look at it, look back and I think, that is beyond human norms. Like, that is really seriously, that was a thing, you know? Wow. And you sort of think back, like, hmm, very minor avatar of the fat god? Hmm. But, you know, then it fades away again, and you're back in the normal sphere, and it's like, huh. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, my conclusion here is basically that the human norm, if you're a high-functioning human being, is that you pass through phases of somewhat divine consciousness more or less as a natural metabolic process, right? So if you're an artist, you know, they occasionally have these enormous speaks of creative power, and they'll go through a six-month or a year period of just being on fire, and then it will kind of fade back and they'll go back to their kind of regular pattern again. So I think that in some ways, I think a lot of religion is basically storytelling around really complex human metabolic processes that play out in our minds and our bodies. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate way of, uh, of saying it. And I, there's, what's nice about that vision also is that it has certain practical outcomes, that there's entailments to that perspective, one of which is to, uh, you know, people talk about staying present, but one of the things that you're staying present to is just your ongoing moods, mind frames, sensations, reactions to sensations, 
perceptual overlays. So, you know, all of these sort of things that are happening kind of in real time. And as you as you get less caught up in reflection and mulling over things and, you know, endless regurgitation of events and you stay more focused, then one of the things that you recognize is are these variations and how much of the sacred is available in an ordinary day. It might just be there for for a moment, you know, the, the, a, a beam of light coming through the window or a breath of air across your hands or, or a passing mood or a, a memory, a, a flash a sense of, you know, consonance with the world, but it's often very ephemeral. And yet if you are more present, you pick up on those things, even the very slight ones, but they still add, add up to a complete balanced breakfast by the end of the day, uh -huh. Uh -huh. you know? Um, and so there's, there's, there's some very specific kind of outcomes of uh, looking at things in the, in the way that you, that you talk about. Yeah. I mean, I really think that it changes your, uh, perspective because in a sense it's just like you know it's kind of like people that live in an area if you live in uh you know some rural setting where you get to know to read the weather right you kind of you know if it's kind of like this in the morning you sort of know what it's going to be like in the afternoon and so you just don't get caught out in the rain very much you know you're not always carrying the wrong clothing because you sort of know the pattern of the day and you've got a sense for things and being able to live like that in complex, rapidly changing environments really feels like a special kind of privilege. Like I'm in harmony with my environment most of the time because I'm sensitive to the shifts and the shuffles and I can kind of roll with it and I don't have such a fixed sense of identity. So I go from being locked on this humanitarian quest really consistently on basically zero budget for you know, 12 or 14 years and then I get to a turning point and it's like, okay, well, the next step is hypercapitalism. And now I'm going to go off and I'm going to do that instead. And, you know, being able to make a turn like that without it costing me my identity uh, comes from this long practice of understanding that things are change. So what is the, the shift to, to hypercapitalism in your, in your career? What, 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 are you, what are you up to now? So um, a lady called Daisy Eris Campbell who is the daughter of Ken Campbell, put on a play called Cosmic Trigger, which was the biopic of Robert Anton Wilson's life. Uh, and I didn't know very much about Robert Anton Wilson's life. His books had enormously influenced me. Like, I wouldn't have survived my 20s without um, Prometheus Rising. You know, that, that thing was an anchor for me in a huge way. Um, and my life has been kind of weirdly wound around Anton Wilson's life. I was in Santa Cruz uh, living with friends of his when he was dying. And they kept trying to get me over there to go and do his last rites. And it just never happened. He was just a little bit too ill for new visitors. And so there was about two weeks where it was all kind of this hot standby of we might get the call. And then he just slipped away. Um, so I was always left with this weird sense of incompleteness with Anton Wilson because I'd never met him and yet he'd been such a huge figure. Um, so I go and see the play. And the play completely smacks sense into me about money and dealing with Western society. Like up until then, I'd been very ascetic. I took no more out of society that I could live on. You know, I was always broke. There'd be occasional prosperous times, but it would never last more than a few months. And, and it was just this kind of rolling disaster. And I saw the play and then I realized that, you know, huge amounts of his life were scarred by poverty. He'd left the material security. He went out into the wilderness. The wilderness was filled with wolves. Uh, his children were incredibly badly affected by the fact that he was broke. Um, and 
you know, I realized like, wow, if Bob couldn't make it out here on no money, there's no way I'm going to be able to do it. And it was just this thing of it was like the final closing on the door. Okay, if you couldn't make it work, I am not going to be able to make it work. So I am going to change track and I'm going to go and get a job. And that was a huge transformation. I mean, it was like being hit with a bat. Um, uh, and then uh, the job that I, you know, lacked into was Ethereum. So it was a charity run out of Switzerland that had raised some money in Bitcoin and were going to build a, a contracting, a sort of smart contract platform. So sort of like a cryptocurrency with a scripting language built into it. Um, and I joined that team and I went back to doing tech and it's turned out to be hugely successful. Uh, Ethereum's current market cap is $35 billion. Uh, and and it's it's just, it's a really big deal. And it's like, oh, for the first time in my life, I have something resembling a career. Amazing. Where did that come from? Um, so, you know, all praise to St. Robert Anton Wilson. He's still guiding me on the path. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also wanted to ask you a little bit, of, uh, you know, a kind of Wilsonian question. Uh, um, we were, we're winding down here a little bit, but uh, is, is that there's aspects of your of your worldview that strike me as in some some ways libertarian particularly the way in which you are thinking in terms of your your you know human rights or the resiliency work thinking about uh, how to avoid government how to avoid large NGOs and state actors and et cetera et cetera and how to use technical solutions that enable people to develop more autonomy maybe in a, on a village scale or a small fa family scale and so there is this kind of sense of like all the good that can come from avoiding large state actors. And at the same time, you have some very pointed critiques against uh, contemporary libertarianism, corporate libertarianism, whatever you want to call it. Um, and because Wilson himself is very interesting that way and that he, he some of his ideas you can hear in the mouths of techno-libertarians from contemporary Silicon Valley, but he also had a tremendous ethics and also a sense of, of the realities of poverty and the uh, you know one of the things he, I remember him saying about the problem with libertarians is that they they basically hate poor people uh, and he didn't and partly because he was one or sort of chose to be one in some ways um, so I, I was I was curious as you move into this different zone where suddenly you're dealing with economics and crypto cryptocurrencies and things that are going to be used by state actors and blah 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 how do you find your own sense about freedom, movement vis-a-vis -vis the state uh, changing or opening up as you as you go forward? Mm. So, I mean, there are really only two things that I fundamentally believe in uh, in this kind of domain. And the first one of those is individual free will, right? Like it or not, individuals clearly have freedom of choice about what they will or they won't do. Uh, and that's pretty much the end of it, right? You, you just, they will sit there and do nothing until they die if they choose to, and there's nothing you can do about that. So individual free will, you've got to work with it because you can't get rid of it. Second thing is industrial mass production really works. It's enormously cheaper to make 100 million buckets than it is to make one bucket. And as a result, you're going to wind up with a certain amount of um, mass production of, you know, structures as just a part of the way that the economy works because it really is more efficient to do it that way up to some certain limit. So I think those two forces have been basically playing off against each other for most of the time since we invented industrial mass manufacture. 
Uh, now we're going into this post-industrial phase and nobody really understands what wealth is or where it comes from or how it's created anymore. I have a feeling that we're going to need a whole new raft of political theory to deal with this kind of post-industrial time. But I don't think we're going to get it until virtual reality is mature. And once virtual reality is mature, I have a feeling that that might give us an ability to think clearly about politics in a new way because we could build such comprehensive alternate worlds and then run around in them and see how they work that it might give us some kind of leverage on the questions of how we do politics in the real world. Also, the, so the, the, the role of VR in, the, in, your, in your vision is, is that it will allow us to create really complicated, gate, let's call them game worlds, where you can mm -hmm. run uh, alternate possibilities and sort of show the, you know, the, the power of certain uh, decisions that could be made or certain technical in, in, interventions, that, that that will be something that people will be doing. Well, I think it will be like fiction, but it will be fiction that needs a certain kind of internal economic logic. Otherwise, your simulations crash. You know, every time somebody tries to monkey around with like a game economy in something like EVE or Warcraft, you usually get massive exploitation of their manipulation in such a way that you get kind of crazy outcomes in the games, right? So similarly, if you're going to try and build a science fiction world that a lot of people are going to explore, it's going to have to have an internal rationale about how things work where the players will game the hell out of it. So I think that these kind of virtual worlds might turn out to be real hotbeds for socio-political innovation as we try and lots and lots of different models for modeling and managing the virtual world. I think we're going to build a lot of kind of gut feel experience about how the real world works in ways that we currently can't. So I think it might be kind of like a wind tunnel for developing new political models. Fascinating. Um, I've got it. We just got a couple of, of minutes left, and there's one other thing to, to pick up on uh, mm. on some of the discussions about spirituality that, that we were having before. And I, I know it's a it's a big issue uh, that you brought up in some of your talks is uh, the idea of living with uncertainty. It mm. seems to me that one of the the, the the central things that people could be doing now. Uh, as they, you know, so many people, they, 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 they know that things are changing. They know that the future is going to be very different. It's very scary. They're, they're still living in, in the kind of habitual stream of, a, of earlier generations or earlier worlds that are, that are not really in some ways alive anymore. Uh, and, and so there's a, a, it's a very precarious kind of experience, even for people who are doing okay uh, in the situation. Um, and it seems to me that one of the keys, which is both intellectual, future-oriented, and also spiritual, or a certain kind of spirituality, is has to do with uncertainty and living with uncertainty, and the certain kind of freedom that can come from really embracing the degree of uncertainty that is probably always the case, but is certainly the case now. And, and I'd love to hear you say a few words about that sort of practice of living with uncertainty, even as we are driven to come up with and try new solutions, new answers, new concrete, uh, you know, outcomes. It's not just about, oh, who knows, man, let's just see. But there's still some kind of active uncertainty within your process that, that intrigues me. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's I am hugely uncertain about things. Um, and I mean, a lot of this weirdly comes from the science side. So, you know, I've looked at physics it's pretty clear that we don't know what the universe is made of, and we're having a really hard time explaining the shape or and pattern of the stars in the sky. You know, we talk about dark matter and all this kind of stuff, and, you know, nobody really agrees. We can't measure the stuff, and it's, it's a bit of a disaster. And then you look at the particles, and we've got 70 or so different kinds of particles, and we don't really understand why there are some particles existing and others that don't. 
and we keep looking for stuff and not finding it or we find the wrong stuff and it's just a, it's just a mess right so if we don't really know what matter is made of and we can't explain why the stars in the sky are in the places they are at all in any kind of convincing rigorous way it's pretty clear we don't understand what's happening right about the most solid anchor that we have is the fossil record which is a billion year convincing narrative about what a human being is and at the beginning of the fossil record it's pretty clear that we don't really know whether life originated here or whether it landed as a bunch of self-replicating molecules in some kind of spore right and either one of those is scientifically credible there's no basis for making a rational judgment at that point we're just running off the end of the evidence nobody knows take your pick so i really try not to reason about things that i can't observe and measure except through the lens of evolution right everybody's spiritual experiences seem to be different some people emerge with total certainty that the entire thing is one by word krishna other people come out with a total doubt and the the feeling that the entire thing may be a cosmic joke and and we're all supposed to laugh along with the tune you know and my my kind of gut feeling is that the uncertain people are my people the ones who come out with a solid idea of what's going on, I think they've got their own thing going on, but that's not my department. My department is all of the uncertain people. And to a fair degree, that's across different religious traditions or no religious tradition. You know, if you're a scientist and you look at the night sky and go, I don't know why that's there. I don't really know what's going on here. The whole thing is very mysterious. You know, the world is filled with un, you know amazing experiences that we're having for the first time. Who knows what's going to be repeatable? You know, that kind of agnosticism and an acceptance of our limits of knowing, uh, I think, is a really, really beneficial position to be in. Um, it can be hard to maintain. I mean, there's always this siren call of faith. But at the end of the day, I think we've got to stick with the experience and stay in the unknown because that's where the science is. And the science is still one of the best tools that we're ever going to have for knowing what is true. Wonderful. You know, we're going to have to end it right there. Vinay, I knew this was going to be a great conversation, and it was. Uh, thanks so much for coming on to Expanding Mind. Really enjoyed it. Thank you really well. Good to see you. All right. Uh, to all you out there, until next week, keep your minds open. <laughs>